Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, socially distancing from Queens, New York. I'm Adam Feuerstein, staring at the same four walls in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, sheltering in place in the San Francisco Bay Area. It is Thursday, April 16th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. First up, our colleague Nick Florco will call in from Washington, D.C. to talk about the impact the pandemic is having there. Next, we'll talk about the promise and limitations of efforts to use technology to track COVID-19 cases with the help of our colleague Casey Ross. Then Mike Huckman, a veteran of PR and pharma reporting, joins us to share tips about what you should and shouldn't do when giving a virtual data presentation. Finally, because why the hell not? We'll talk about ex-Theranos CEO Elizabeth Holmes and her upcoming criminal trial, which could be the first truly high-profile court case to take place in the COVID-19 era. But before we get to this week's podcast stuff, Damien, Adam, and I humbly ask that you consider subscribing to Stat Plus. We do. And so at the risk of sounding too self-promotional, a Stat Plus subscription gives you exclusive access to news and analysis that often moves biopharma stocks. That means profiles of the personalities and power brokers shaping the industry, explanations of healthcare policy coming out of D.C., and reporting on the Silicon Valley tech breakthroughs that are disrupting healthcare. What Damien says is all true. Stat Plus really does all of that. So you can subscribe to Stat Plus today at statnews.com slash subscribe. And as a special thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener, enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD. That's 10% off your first year by using the code P-O-D. We hope you enjoy Stat Plus and thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener. Today I'm instructing my administration to halt funding of the World Health Organization while a review is conducted to assess the World Health Organization's role in severely mismanaging and covering up the spread of the coronavirus. Everybody knows what's going on there. That was President Trump at a news conference this week, one in which he announced a freeze on U.S. funding to the World Health Organization. It was the latest in a series of increasingly surreal headlines and images to come out of Washington, D.C. this past month. We've seen a gas mask in Congress, reporters conducting interviews from 10 feet away, and the politicization of a decades-old malaria drug. Joining us to discuss how the coronavirus has changed the day-to-day business of the Capitol is Nick Florco, one of Stat's D.C. correspondents. Nick, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the WHO situation. Nick, how did things escalate to this point? Well, apparently it's in vogue for conservatives in Washington to really beat up on the WHO lately over its relationship with China. So Republicans are really upset by what they see as the WHO being too willing to take China's claims about COVID-19 at face value. They've really latched on, for example, to this tweet from January where the WHO tweeted that, quote, investigations conducted by the Chinese authorities have found no clear evidence of human-to-human transmission. And of course, that's of the coronavirus. Now, that's obviously been proven wrong since, but Republicans are really, really angry that the WHO tweeted out this information, seemingly without verifying it. And so we've seen Republican senators calling for investigations into the WHO. We've even seen some calls for the director general's resignation. And Trump was the latest and most high-profile conservative to join the chorus of complaints. He previewed last week that he was thinking of cutting funding. And then this week during his nightly news conference, he announced he was formally cutting funding. And then he just railed on the WHO for about 10 minutes. It was really a surreal sight. So in the days since then, how has 
both the WHO and, and kind of the rest of the international community responded to this? Well, the WHO's response has been interesting. So before the formal announcement, the director general had pleaded with the U.S. not to politicize the virus. But after the funding freeze was announced, his Twitter has really provided some interesting glance into sort of what he's feeling. He's been retweeting messages of support from people like Melinda Gates and Jimmy Carter. And so that goes to your question, Damien, about sort of how the international community is responding. They're really not happy. But the director general actually has been doing this weird thing where he's been tweeting out one or two words that seem to respond to Trump's actions. So I've counted four so far. There's been stronger together, love, values, and most recently, confidence. So it's a really weird time for the WHO. Wasn't Stronger Together Hillary Clinton's campaign slogan? It was. And I really wish somebody at the press conferences would ask him, does he know that? Because it was definitely interesting. (laughs) So Nick, shifting gears, your job as a DC reporter usually involves piling into congressional hallways, crowding around elected officials. How has the coronavirus changed all of that? It's really changed things a lot. So Congress is basically shuttered now, but up until a few weeks ago, there was still a contingency of reporters who were trying to get answers from lawmakers. And it was pretty surreal because normally what reporters do is what we call walk-in talks. It's what it sounds like. I mean, lawmakers are really busy people and they're seemingly always on the go. So you walk with them to their next appointment with your recorder in hand, and that's your interview. Now, that becomes really hard when you're supposed to be six or 10 feet away. And there's some really great photos out there of reporters who are wearing masks, standing in a circle, all really craning their arms so that recorders can pick up what lawmakers are saying. Those photos are really going to go down in the history books. It's totally changed the way that reporters in Washington cover Congress. So back before coronavirus dominated every conversation, you were closely tracking the issue of drug pricing in Congress. Has that debate been sidelined by the pandemic? Quite frankly, the topic seems dead right now in Washington. And that's really not due to just some last-minute goodwill towards pharma, though I'd venture to guess here that there probably is some, given how central they are to the COVID-19 response. But the coronavirus actually motivated Congress to pass a lot of its so-called must-pass legislation before it shuttered in response to the pandemic. And advocates were really hoping that their drug pricing legislation could be tucked into those packages. That's basically how Congress works now. Hardly any legislation passes on its own, It's tucked into these so-called must-pass legislations. And so when there was no drug pricing legislation in the coronavirus package, it pretty much sealed the deal that drug pricing wouldn't come up again until at least the lame duck session in November after the election. And that's really bad news, quite frankly, for advocates. So on a similar note, just a few months ago, I think we were all preparing for a presidential campaign in which healthcare and the cost of medicine would be central issues to the debate. Now, is the coronavirus and, and the government's response to it, is that probably going to drown all of that out as, as the campaign moves forward? Well, it's, it's been a weird campaign season for sure. I mean, there's been some attempts by Democratic groups in particular to make the election really a referendum on Trump's pandemic response. I mean, there's a Democratic-aligned group, for example, called Protect Our Care that set up what they call a coronavirus war room. And they're just churning out attack after attack after attack daily on Trump. I mean, just this week, they put out an ad criticizing his travel ban, for example, that they ran on the president's favorite station, Fox News. But it's been interesting because the election also isn't this 24-7 news cycle that it has been before. I mean, there's no big rallies. The conventions are delayed. Joe Biden is taken to do these odd scripted videos in his library. And so it's sort of hard to figure out exactly how coronavirus is going to play in the campaign so far. I mean, there's definitely groups that are trying to make it the issue, but we still kind of don't know. 
And I'd say if you want to read some of the tea leaves, you know, my colleague Lev really does have a good story out on stat right now about this issue. You know, Democrats trying to figure out how to message around the coronavirus and the campaign. Nick, you're a really tall guy. So I hope that extra long reach helps with those walk and talks. Thanks for joining us. (laughs) Thanks a lot. Next up, we're going to talk about technology and COVID-19 contact tracing. Yeah, contact tracing, as you've probably heard by now, involves tracking down people who have crossed paths with newly diagnosed patients. That's typically done slowly by public health workers, but efforts are underway to use phone data to speed up the process for COVID-19. Joining us to talk about this tech is Casey Ross. He's STAT's National Technology Correspondent. Casey, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me on. So Casey, contact tracing has become kind of a buzz phrase in recent days. Can you explain briefly how it's done traditionally? Yeah, usually it involves sending out an army of public health workers to interview infected patients and then trace their contacts over the prior uh, 14 days or so to get a sense of who they may have exposed to the illness as well. And then you can get a sense of the spread and who else might be impacted. So Casey, how would these smartphone tracing apps work like differently from traditional contact tracing? So in this case, uh, instead of doing it the old fashioned way, you'd use a a phone uh, which would use a Bluetooth signal in most cases to track proximity of uh, people to an infected person. And so then that data would then be shipped to a server and uploaded to public health authorities who could use it to help maybe jog the memories of infected people about whom they have uh, come in contact with. So it would be sort of a technical aid to help guide the efforts and make contact tracing more efficient and precise. So Casey, you put out a piece raising a number of questions about this technology. One of those questions centers around how many people participate. Namely, are enough people going to actually get tested and voluntarily download a tracing app? Tell us what you learned from your reporting on this. These are two big fundamental questions. It's hard to do contact tracing if you don't know who has the illness. You need to have adequate testing. So that testing sort of needs to sit alongside uh, an effort to use technology uh, in order to do contact tracing. You know, the second question is, even if you have that testing and you have a good sense of the people that may be infected, You need to get enough people, both healthy and infected, to voluntarily download a tracing app in order to have adequate coverage so that you could give people in a community any meaningful information, you know, about the number of infections and and whether they may have been exposed. Kind of expanding on that point, there are a lot of these apps. There's one from Apple and Google. There's another project being led by MIT with Facebook. And then there's something called NextTrace out of Seattle. Is there concern that all these apps will compete against each other and and split up the pool of people who want to participate and and thus kind of make the whole effort less effective? Yeah, I think that's uh, an issue. You know, we're seeing very rapid fire innovation. Everybody, I think, out of good intention wants to help here. And so they're coming up with their own projects, but it ends up getting fragmented and siloed. And so maybe, you know, Apple and Google will get a big tranche of people. Maybe MIT and Facebook will get a bunch. But, you know, I think the efforts would be made more effective if everyone was using the same product, because then you just have better coverage, 
better uptake, you know, in more granular data that would help people understand the spread and to be able to more effectively track it. Another question uh, raised here centers on whether this technology is really additive, you know, namely whether smartphone based tools, you know, would really be an improvement over the traditional contact tracing method. Uh, What did you learn about that? Everybody kind of wants to be an armchair epidemiologist right now, including technology companies. And it's not a given that a technology, when combined with efforts by uh, humans who have been doing this work, is necessarily going to help those humans do the work better. You really don't know whether if a public health worker, for example, uh, shows you know phone data to an infected patient, is that going to turn the patient off? Is that going to get in the way of what needs to be a trusting relationship for those public health workers to get information out of people? You never know. People might shut down. So it's easy to assume that technology is going to work, but it's much harder to sort of prove that in practice and be assured that this is going to actually be helpful. So another issue at play here is the fact that smartphones aren't always distributed evenly across the population. Are these tracing apps going to be able to guard against bias and discrimination? I think that's a major question that they're going to have to answer going forward because you do have very uneven penetration of smartphones in markets around the country. It's not going to serve the country or people's interests well if you have it working in a wealthy community, you know, and then not in one where there are higher rates of poverty and less smartphone use. So I think that's a really important question that the companies that want to do this and especially governments who are overseeing it, you know, need to answer and be sure is addressed. You know, otherwise, I think you can have real equity issues. Casey, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks again for having me on. talk about how to give a presentation at scientific and medical conferences during the COVID-19 era. So back in March, which feels like an eternity ago, we saw a wave of cancellations and virtualizations of the drug industry's big spring conferences. A few of the most notable were the cancer meetings put on by the American Association for Cancer Research, which is AACR, and the American Society of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO for short. Yeah, so many of these meetings have now switched to an online format, uh, which begs the question, how do you give a good data presentation or a corporate update via Zoom? Joining us to offer some tips is Mike Huckman. He's a global practice leader at the PR firm W2O. He's experienced all the big drug industry meetings from both sides of the podium, first as a biopharma reporter at CNBC, and now in his career advising drug companies on how not to be boring. Mike, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back with all of you. And it's really great uh, to hear each of you sounding nice and healthy and good. (laughs) Thanks, Mike. So first, tell us about what you used to do in the pre-COVID-19 era to help executives prepare for presentations. Is really winnowing it down to a place where less is more. I think as all of you and your listeners are aware, there is a tendency, especially among scientists, principal investigators, to throw everything and the kitchen sink into their presentation and to put them on their slides. So it's really working with them to edit and crystallize everything down to what are the key takeaways. And let's just focus on that and save everything else for the Q&A. 
And Mike, how have you changed your business coaching executives during the pandemic? Working with them like everybody else is. So essentially using Zoom um, or other platforms and connecting with them virtually, uh, looking at each other on our laptops, but still doing the same work, just obviously not in the room. So it's been an easy lift and shift. So, Mike, we gave you sort of a homework assignment before this podcast appearance, which was to put together sort of the do's and don'ts for people who might be faced with having to present data that they once would have done in a room full of interested parties and now have to do so digitally. So why don't we start with the do's? What are the top five? Yeah, Damien, thanks. I did my homework. Here are the top five do's in listicle fashion. Number one, more Cuomo, less confusion. It means using clear, short simple bullets, similar to what the governor is doing in his graphics, in his daily news conferences. And the reason for that is this. The audiences are going to be so much more easily distracted right now. So presenters really need to make their scripts and their slides work significantly harder for them. Number two, remember, bold is beautiful. Use bolder colors on your graphs and your charts and larger font in all of your text and choose all of your visuals with a more discriminating eye. Third, with an homage to Gloria Estefan, get on your feet, stand and deliver. Make sure that your laptop, your camera is at eye level, maybe even a little bit above. It really puts you into more into presentation mode. You're going to be standing at the poster or at the lectern on the dais anyway if this were a real life in-person meeting. So do the same from your home or office. And you'll find that it also helps open your diaphragm. It really gives you more breath and it gives your voice more power. I'm standing right now as I'm talking to you. Number four. Make your voice heard. Use a handset that has a good mic. There's no need to go out to a store. You can buy one on Amazon. And here's why. Relying on the computer mic can make you sound echoey and make your voice harder to hear. And number five, let there be light. Make sure the light is in front of you. If you're what's called backlit, in other words, the light, the windows are behind your head, you can look like you're in the witness protection program, kind of those shadowy figures you used to see interviewed on 60 Minutes back in the day. However, if you still find that your face is in the shadows, consider buying what's called a ring light, also available on Amazon. And you guys, as far as I know, I do not own stock in the company. So, Mike, those are all great tips, and I can tell you uh, that I have followed none of those during my <laughs> recent Zoom calls, so I will try my best to to work on it. Why don't you give us now the, the five pieces of advice that, that people shouldn't do? Sure. The number one, don't. Don't hide behind your slide. The audience not only wants to hear you, they want to see you. So use the camera. Make virtual eye contact, if you will, with the audience, even if it's just for a few moments during your presentation. Number two, don't ignore social distance on your slides. Don't overcrowd your slides by, and I'm going to use an extreme example here, squeezing a Kaplan-Meier curve, a waterfall plot, a spider plot, a forest plot, a box and whiskers plot, and then 10 bullets on top of all that onto one slide. We've all seen it. Happens every day, all day. Number three, don't be human ambient. The audience is likely at home. They're distracted. They're multitasking. So use inflection and gesticulation. See what I did there? Give greater verbal emphasis to the most important stuff. Number four, and I don't mean to be flip here. Don't go coronaviral. 
Look, you should try to find a private closed door room with a good backdrop and turn off your phones, turn off the volume on all your devices. Don't be bothered, though, if the dog barks, the baby cries, a siren blares, or the neighborhood is applauding during hospital shift change um, outside your window. Just roll with it. People are used to that by now. On the other hand, don't become the latest work-from-home meme. So position your camera so it can't possibly capture the kids, the dog running in and jumping up. Get rid of any clutter and any distractions in your background. And please, for gosh sakes, don't use those distracting virtual backgrounds and make sure you disable the apps like Snapchat filters. I think we all can remember the recent viral video of the local TV news reporter who had his Snapchat filter on while he was doing Facebook Live. So don't be that guy. And number five, don't forget to check the tech. Make the time, please, to practice and rehearse. You're going to be at the mercy of the technology more than ever before. So do dry runs with a friend, a colleague, a family member to make sure you look good, you sound good, and then invite constructive feedback on your performance. So let's look ahead to January 2021. You know, it's really hard to imagine thousands of industry types pouring into San Francisco for the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference. What do you think, Mike? Is that meeting going to happen in nine months? I think it depends on whether COVID-19 circles back around, number one. Number two, it depends if maybe we have an antiviral or more than one antiviral by then. It's clear to everybody here, we likely will not have a vaccine by then. So I think that it is going to happen unless one of those things does or doesn't occur. But here's what maybe it will finally, finally push. Let's get it out of that crowded hotel. Let's not squeeze into those old hallways and rooms. And maybe let's go to the Moscone Center where there's more room to truly keep social distance. We've all been whining and complaining about it for years and years and years. It's time for that to finally happen. So with everything you just said, all of those those very reasonable presumptions, let's say JP Morgan is slated to happen next year at the Western St. Francis where it's taken place for, for decades. Would you go? I will go, but I will take every single precaution I, I can. You will see me there with a face mask and with a packet of wipes in my hand and with a carabiner with some hand sanitizer on my belt or my backpack. Mike, thanks for coming on the podcast. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Finally, we're going to talk about what was supposed to be the blockbuster court drama of the summer. That is the criminal trial of ex-Theranos CEO Elizabeth Holmes. Yeah, so Rebecca, tell us how the pandemic has impacted the timing of that trial. So the trial has been delayed. It's now been rescheduled optimistically for the end of October. And that was during a teleconference uh, I listened in on yesterday. I think that timing, though, remains pretty hopeful. Uh, The judge noted that the trial could still be pushed back to early 2021, given the COVID-19 situation. And I think it's not unlikely that that happens. So Rebecca, how might COVID-19, this crisis we're all living under here, affect the Elizabeth Holmes trial? Yeah, so something really fascinating about this is it could become the first really high-profile court trial to take place during the COVID-19 era. You know, that could mean everyone's wearing masks, everyone's staying six feet apart from each other to avoid the risk of infection for, you know, the many lawyers, members of the jury, 
journalists, spectators that are expected to crowd the courthouse in Silicon Valley where it's going to take place. And, and keep in mind, you know, this is going to be a spectacle. It's, it's going to be a huge show um, that's going to be talked about on, on the TV news uh, every night because, you know, there's so much interest in, in this case. One thing I, I was speculating about on Twitter that would be pretty bizarre is, um, you know, there's a lot of talk, of course, about blood tests for antibodies to see if people have already had COVID-19 and may have built up immunity. And it would be pretty interesting if at that point, people who want to enter the courtroom um, need to get a a blood test or show that they have gotten a blood test uh, in order to get into this trial uh, for Theranos, uh, which has uh, quite the history with blood tests. Well, yeah, that's kind of the surreal part. So I'm sure everyone listening to this recalls that the animating factor of the Theranos story is the company claimed to have a technology that could do certain things with blood that it turned out not to be able to do. And the ensuing alleged fraud is why we're talking about this. But even in a practical sense, in that world that you imagine, Rebecca, where, where entering the courtroom might require taking a blood test, could that impact like jury selection? Like if I'm Elizabeth Holmes' attorney, I'm not ecstatic about the world in which I'm going to be trying this case. Yeah, I think that's very right. Uh, Brad Longcar, the uh, biotech investor, tweeted, quote, have to imagine the defense feels a lot worse today now that the gravity of public health and diagnostics are so front and center to everybody, end quote. And I think he's absolutely right. You know, it's going to be really hard to find a jury that's willing to take lightly alleged lies about diagnostic testing, uh, especially in this new world where everyone is sort of a minor expert on on diagnostic tests. Um, You know, people know a lot more about this than they did three months ago. You know, guys, too bad there isn't a kind of small desktop device that could detect coronavirus antibodies with a teeny tiny drop of blood. You know, that would be great, wouldn't it? I think a great alternate headline for this story is that faulty testing delayed trial surrounding faulty testing. (laughs) But um bum That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode. Alex Hogan is our senior producer, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode and what you didn't like. Tell us whether you think Elizabeth Holmes should wear a mask at our court trial. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. We really do appreciate the feedback. And if you like what we do, you can leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. Stay safe and see you next week.